Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. Hopefully you've been following our series, Podcasting Amidst the Pandemic, where we attempt to talk to people who are coming from different perspectives about how they're navigating and understanding the COVID-19 pandemic. And today I'm lucky to have with us a friend and colleague in a lot of ways, Paku Her, who has over 23 years of experience in anti-racism organizing, has been with a number of organizations doing important work, has her own consulting firm, and I'm just really appreciative that she's lending her time to share with us her thoughts and experiences today. So welcome, Paku. Thanks for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So let's just start with like how how you're doing. Like, how are you? I feel like we're asking that question in a more real way than we typically do in our society, right? Like, I really mean, how are you? I, you know, I, I am really exhausted at this point. We're like a, you know, a few weeks in. The kids are have finished their second week of school at home with me. I work from home. Um, and I think it's, I think my exhaustion right now is very much like um, me needing to ask myself at what stage of grief am I on Kubler-Ross's little system of grief? You know, like what stage am I in? What's actually happening? Um, and I think there was a part of me that, the last couple of weeks, I've put, a, I've put a lot of energy into trying to remain positive for my kids. And I don't have much juice left right now <laughs> to be positive for anybody. I need like to recharge. And, you know, like as a parent, it's my job. Like I, I need to do that. Um, but I'm also discovering that like I have a limited store of how much I can do around that. And work is also really bonkers right now. Like we're doing so much at Parents Together. Um, trying to be useful to parents and families during the pandemic. And so we've been in rapid response mode going on three weeks right now. Gosh, that's right. That's a lot. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that piece around trying to be positive and have a beat for these young people that we're, we're supposed to be guiding in the world. Mm-hmm. And part of what I've come to is that, um, you know, part of my work, yes, is to provide that hope if I can, um, but also to be real and and honest and the fact that like we don't have to be chipper all the time we don't have to have a positive outlook all the time and and we can adapt like that we can be sad and angry and still move through our day and i think in a lot of ways i um i don't i protect my kids from my own ups and downs emotionally Mm-hmm. Right. Like not that I don't show them that I'm sad or upset or angry, but uh, this is like 24 seven. We're together. And so yes. they get to see it all. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. For I your... think it's required. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, was gonna say, I think it's required um, a certain level of vulnerability and transparency with them, but also like a level of forgiveness that um, like when I'm not feeling great and I react or respond in a particular way and I'm, I choose to be unkind or I act out in a way that is um, triggered by stress, that I've also had to learn how to be like more gracious with myself and um, seek forgiveness from my kids and my partner because that's just there's just a lot happening. And it's interesting you were just saying like, you know, how do we show our kids and other young people how to be emotionally present with whatever's happening is we've had lots of conversations in our house about that too, where um, like my younger daughter has said that she is afraid of some things, you know, and, and your first reaction is to want to say, well, you don't need to be afraid. Like we're here, we're going to take care of you. And it's been an exercise in saying it's okay to be afraid. Like it is okay to be sad. It's okay. All of those feelings are okay. And they're not the only things that we will feel forever. And let's find things to do or ways to be involved with our community or ways to be together that will help us have other feelings too. That's been a very present conversation for us. Yes. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about your work at Parents Together. So there you do uh, digital advocacy for Parents Together. Maybe tell folks a little bit about the organization and your work there. Yeah. So we are um, an organization that's still relatively new. I think we imagine ourselves still in startup mode, a couple years old, a few years old. Um, And we function with what we like to call a a functional organizing model, which is like, oh, could we bring people in because we offer them something 
Um, and in this respect, it's digital tools for family engagement. Things like, oh, sign up for like daily questions that we'll send you to engage with your kids. Or if you speak Spanish at home, we'll send you stuff from our bilingual kids program to help you talk, you know, talk to your kids and speak Spanish and, and um, support and nurture Spanish language development and secondary language development. Those kinds of things, which are in many respects, fairly apolitical um, and wouldn't necessarily fall into advocacy, but very much like a parenting product. And the idea is, could we get people to come and connect with us um, around a product that gives them meaning and they find valuable that wants to, that where then they want to have a relationship with us. And then could we build off that relationship and help them engage in advocacy? Um, so that's, you know, it's an interesting way of doing work, which is very different than like the far left leaning progressive campaign um, driven work that I've done in the past, but it is very much a culture shifting um, space opening kind of approach to see if we could get people to take action. And so I work, so we sort of have like two portions of the organization. I work on the advocacy side, although the whole team obviously is in sync. Um, and we've worked on lots of different kinds of issues, running online petitions and targeting members of Congress and making phone calls to people and doing community events that have really been on any number of issues that impact families and kids. So everything from protecting food stamps and SNAP and creating equitable access to education. Um, we've also done stuff on family separation and um, detention centers. We've done all kinds of stuff. Um, and so we're, it's an interesting period of the organization's life to try to figure out like what, what moves somebody who would otherwise say, oh, I don't talk politics, um, but they would be willing to engage in something if we helped them see the importance of it. In some ways, this feels like a perfect marriage of all of the work that you've done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm remembering when I met you. I, I want to say I was looking back, I think around like 2005-ish, mm -hmm. and you were doing anti-racism training, and uh, I was in the training, and I remember just thinking like, who is this cool person? Like, I want to know them better. <laughs> Oh. And it was, well, and I, it was the way that you did the training was, it was, it was inviting. It was, it was like, be in relationship with me mm -hmm. and let's be curious about this thing, racism together. And I, I think about like, I've had a lot of people shape how I do what I do. And my first teacher being, I think probably in college, maybe even before, but you know, professor and like um, 98, 99, Beverly Tatum, why all mm -hmm. the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria, like watching her teach her course was really, was life-changing for me and framed what I, how I do what I do. And your training was similar. Like it really oh, was. Like thank I, you. I'm so pleased to hear that. Oh yeah. Like just the way that you do what you do. And so the reason it feels like a, a perfect marriage of all you do is it's like, your your way of training is to in invite people into relationship. And then it's, it's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. Once we're in relationship, do you want to move with me? Do you want to be curious with me? Maybe you care about this issue. And that to me is so beautiful. And as I like, I didn't know what organizing was when you trained me then. But like, to me, you to me are the consummate organizer. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I spent a lot of years of my life being um, a holier than thou organizer, which is like, let me just tell everybody what they don't understand. Um, let me prove to everybody how wrong they are, right? which um, clearly is not a good strategy. People don't, people aren't inspired to change or to engage in something because you tell them how wrong they are. Um, and I think about it all the time because my older daughter does a particular sport where I would say the demographic of the people who engage in that are very different than me and my family. We're fairly far left on the political spectrum. Um, and this sport is not quite like that. And so um, one of the things I realized is like, I, I, when, as I became friends with other parents whose children did the sport with my child and who are very different, who like, unless we were doing, like, if not for the sport, we would never have been in relationship, probably 99% sure. Um, I discovered though, that like there were parents and moms and dads and caretakers and grandparents who were deeply invested in wanting to have a relationship. And it gave me a whole different perspective in how I organized. Like there was this group of moms 
who like became friends and we started this Facebook group and very like most of them very conservative. And a lot of stuff started happening around gun violence and school, like when things were really hitting a peak several years ago. Um, and there were a lot of moms who were like second amendment moms, um, in that group. And we started having some conversations and I started thinking, well, we're in a relationship, but it's like, I don't think we can have conversations about what it means to regulate gun ownership. Um, that, you know, doesn't mean that you can't go hunting or you can't do what you want to do. Um, and it was over a period of time, it was probably about two years of sort of back and forth, occasional conversation where we would give each other different perspectives. What was really interesting at the end of sort of this two year period, two of the super conservative gun owning moms of the four are, they're now members of Moms Demand Action, which, which I was like, here is, that's real life organizing. Like yes. that is it. That is it. And what you said about like very deep relationship, it's like, I think for anybody who wants to be doing something meaningful in the world, it's like, it's looking for deep, meaningful relationships and opportunities to talk to people and engage with people and invite them, invite, really invite people to think about something differently um, in all the places that you can. So sometimes that happens at a protest and sometimes that happens at a community meeting, but sometimes it happens in a Facebook group of just three moms that you're in relationship with and they trust you because you're like the only liberal friend that they have and nobody's ever going to say this to you, but them or to say this to them, but you like, so it's just really, it's been interesting to see the sort of crossover in my personal life and what I am learning from people who have chosen also to be in relationship with me. Yeah. Relationship is key. And I've, Mm -hmm. I've wondered that as I've watched the journey from afar, I'm like, hmm, yeah. I wonder what those conversations are like. <laughs> <laughs> there were some, uh, there were some challenging conversations around Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, um, you know, and they were they were hard. They made it hard to show up in the same space together. And several years later, many of us are still friends and still talking and still uh, like recognizing that we are very different, and um, it's possible to disagree incredibly on some things and still show up because our kids love each other. Like we don't have to be friends, but our kids love each other. Yeah. yeah that's hard. Cause I remember when Trayvon Martin happened, I left a gym. The environment was so toxic at this gym. I felt like I couldn't stay. I felt like, uh, I don't have any relationship that's keeping me here. Like yeah. I don't have to stay for this. And yeah. so it makes me think about like, so this pandemic is, has put us all under pressure and thinking about like, what are the invitations here for like deeper community? Mm-hmm. Where am I in community? Um, where do I need to make sure like with all the mutual aid that's popping up, like we're seeing how we're seeing the fruits of, of our labor in terms of relationship, I think coming to fruition and then mm-hmm. also the gaps where it is not there and, and needs to be. Yeah. Do you, where do you see some of those invitations around community need for, yeah. or, you know, the, the result of. Yeah. So I, um, when I think first in a, like a sort of macro way around my, a micro way around my family, um, you know, we have my younger daughter, especially, we have made some choices around how to be in community with our friends from afar. So we have cooked for people, we have baked for people, and we've dropped things off to let people know that we care about them. We're calling people like kids. We're working very hard to make sure that they're having video chats with their friends. And my older daughter is like doing daily workouts with her, with her BMX friends who live all over the country. Um, And they're doing those kinds of things to maintain a sense of community. What I think has been interesting at the same time is that um, while there's the desire to maintain connection and community, I'm also very clear that we can do that as as a luxury, right? Like, because I'm not worried, I'm not like freaking out about how I'm gonna feed my kids right now. I'm not freaking out about the fact that I don't have a job or that I don't have transportation to go pick up the kids' school packets once a week or you know every two weeks or that I can't get to the grocery store or that the formula that I need for a baby is available for like is no longer available on the shelves like the, all of those things I don't have as stressors in my life. So it's easy for me to say to my kids, let's take this time and choose to play the games we never play. Let's take this time and choose to be close and make a choice to see what's great about 
being stuck in this house together or immobilized in lots of ways. Like it is a real privilege as much as I think everybody should be able to cultivate that in order to survive what's very difficult right now in the same, you know, in the similar way as like marginalized communities should also be cultivating joy because that's what keeps us alive. I cannot pretend like my ability to do it this way is not also deeply rooted in my class privilege, my, um, my income privilege, I mean, there's just so much that makes it possible for me to to greet the pandemic this way and to teach my children that this is the way they should do it because we got it good. Absolutely. So we've talked about that too. Yeah, I've talked about that with my kids as well. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting this whole conversation around we you know having have and the privilege that we have in terms of space mm-hmm. and food, all the things that you've said. And my son was complaining about something the other day. And I just, you know, I had to stop him. I didn't want to be one of those kids, one of those parents who's like, you know, there's kids who are starving. But I, I, you know, I said, I really want you to think about how ungrateful you sound right now mm-hmm. because you're complaining about the meal that I cooked, right? Like yeah. I invite you to cook dinner tomorrow night, right? But I also want you mm-hmm. to remember that like we are wanting for very little right now, yeah. like uh, that and that is a luxury because there are so many people in our in our community that that have that are lacking that don't mm-hmm. have access to what they need like you said to 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 meet this pandemic in a way that that allows you to like to to be stress free and i mean yeah. no one's really stress free because we're in of the middle course. of a pandemic but like those daily immediate stressors yeah um yeah that wear on you and it exacerbates the 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 disparities that existed before the pandemic absolutely and things we've talked about before the pandemic so that you know that helps that we've had these conversations before but Mm -hmm. i was like yeah not now no (laughs) i need you to see see this and be grateful totally Totally. yeah it's it's been an interesting balance because you know my husband and I are constantly trying to talk to our kids about the sheer amount of privilege they have to do the, to do the sports they do and to travel the way they do and to have the toys that they have and to have like more than one bike, you know, like my kid has like four bikes and all of this stuff. Um, so it's been interesting during the pandemic because I have chosen to share with the kids and my husband some of the conversations I'm having with our members at Parents Together. We've done a couple surveys to like really ask, try to learn how families are suffering, what's happening around their income. It was now past April 1st and like, like 60% of people could not pay their rent. Like, you know, having these conversations and I've chosen to share some of them with my family to say, listen, let me tell you about this mom I talked to today who like, who has to let her baby wear only two diapers a day because she can't afford diapers and she can't. And when she goes, well, oftentimes the diapers are gone or parents who are not eating any dinner because they won't have enough food for their kids or people who are paying their rent, but like, you know, they've had their heat turned off or their gas turned off. So they're boiling water literally on a grill so that they can bathe. And, you know, like, so let's just be really real about what's happening because the majority of the country is actually experiencing that, not what we are experiencing. And it's, you know, I think that's always a challenging piece when you want to, when there's an important conversation about equity and inequity to have with children, especially right now when the children are also stressed, to try to figure out like how much do we say so they learn what's real? How do we say it in a way where cognitively they will understand? Because, you know, like while my children are nine and 11 and fairly advanced, like they're still children with their own challenges and the, the things that they're worried about. Um, but it's, you know, like it's been, it's been a, the eye of that needle has been relatively small. Like I'm trying to figure out how to thread it yep. so that they don't feel horrible about what they have. So they don't like spiral into like gloom and doom, but that like, we're not kidding about what's actually happening for the majority of people in this country right now. Yes. And it, it makes me think about what we started to talk about, just the fact that we can be scared or anxious or nervous and, right, like the and, and, and yes. I have to remember that, you know, they're capable. And if I, as long as I'm not doing it from a, like a fear tactic perspective of like, look what could happen. Like, no, that, yes, uh, uh, that will, uh, that's unlikely to happen to us and mm-hmm. 
And here we are at a time where we don't know what will happen. And so it's this, I, I, I hesitate to say some of the, some of the share, some of the stories with my boys, because I can't say, and that won't be us. Mm-hmm. Like we can't, we can't, mm-hmm. we can't promise that. Right. We can't right. promise anything right now. It feels like, yeah, and that yeah. feels scary. So I go back to what we were talking about in terms of like my uh, reminding myself that we can have multiple feelings at a time, and mm-hmm. that yes, I have to sometimes be vulnerable and and come to my kids in this conversation not knowing it all, yeah. and. And not being able to answer all questions, but wanting to share in a spirit of having them understand what's real. Um, mm-hmm. But totally. I don't need to lace it with my own anxiety and fear and angst about being a parent that can't promise anything right now. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. it's a lot. It is. It is a lot. It and, is a lot. And then I think you add like the layer of race to it. Like that's this, where I was going. Emer- <laughs> yes. You know, like I just think so. Like at work, we're talking about this and how do we, how do we talk about the way that different racialized communities are experiencing the pandemic? Um, You know, we've been talking about like in black communities where people have historically not trusted and not had access to medicine and care now, now needing it the most. We've talked about um, a lot of migrant and immigrant communities that are trapped in detention centers, which are like, they're just sitting ducks waiting to all get sick. We've talked about Asian Americans and what's happening to Asian Americans because everybody thinks that, first of all, all Asian Americans are Chinese and somehow this is, you know, the president's rhetoric is making it terrible. Like, there's so much to process that, um, like, so when I said, I hit a wall, I'm just really tired. Like, I'm trying to process it all myself. And then I have two young people in my house who are asking questions about it, too. Um, it's a lot. It's just so much to carry. But, like, it's not like we can set it down. You can't set it down just because you're tired. Right, right. But we can acknowledge that we're tired as we try to yes. carry that load. Uh, I was going to go there. So it's it's great that you made that transition, like to ask as someone who does this work in anti-racism space, right? Like, and being Asian American, how has how has COVID landed on you and your family and, and the community? I mean, I know that xenophobia is a thing. Yes. And so if you could just share a little bit about your experience. Of course. Yeah. So we actually had an, um, a totally xenophobic anti-Asian experience actually way at the beginning of before, like we went into pandemic mode when people started talking about COVID-19 and everybody's worried about coronavirus. And um, my, just for people who don't know, my kids are mixed race. My husband is white. Um, and I think, I think that they're Asian presenting you know, they're mixed race, but they're also sometimes racially ambiguous. So people don't always know. Sometimes people think they're Latina. Um, but we were out at a shoe store and they were with me and we were all coughing because we'd had the, like, like a lot of people throughout the winter, we'd had several bouts of the flu and there was like a remnant cough that we had in our family we were at the store and we were shopping in this aisle was my older daughter, myself. Um, and two white people who were not together. Cause I was sort of like, I sort of pieced this together when we'd had this experience and a white woman next to me and another white person on the other side of her. Um, and my daughter was coughing and she was like, ah, she was joking. And she was like, ah, coronavirus. And I, first of all, I was like, oh God, just, you don't say that in public because people are just freaking out already. But I was like, and you don't say that as an Asian American for sure. <laughs> but she'd already said it. She's 11. <laughs> right. So the woman next to me starts freaking out. And I'm like, it's, I had literally had to say to her, it's not coronavirus. It's not coronavirus. But while this is happening, the person on the other side of her, who is not Asian, or not Asian presenting at least, uh, was also coughing a little bit. And the woman was like, are you sure? And I was like, it's not. She's joking. We don't have coronavirus. And she, and she kept looking at me. But the person next to her was also coughing. And I was like, wait, you're not saying anything to that person. Like, it's very clear. <laughs> like, there was a very was a very clear in my experience connection between how we looked to her, the fact that my kid had an itchy throat. Sure. She was joking about coronavirus, but like she only said the word once and like, but it was just, it was such an interesting juxtaposition. So then I had to have a very, I had a, like one of those sit down conversations with my children in which I said, you cannot joke about this. You can't talk about this. 
you can't say this. If you cough, you need to try to cough quietly. Like it's all, it was a very, very intentional conversation. And I too have had the flu this winter. And I've had this like residual cough that comes and goes for the last two months. And I find myself stifling my cough. I find my, I have, I found it's sort of, it feels ridiculous to say it, but I found a way where I can like laugh that in a way that like I can start by coughing and it sounds like a laugh because I am absolutely without a doubt concerned about what people will say or do. Like people are getting stabbed. People are getting like Asian Americans are getting stabbed and beaten and chased down. And like all these anti-Asian groups online are saying they're going to go shoot a bunch of people. Like, like this is two, two little Asian kids in the South were like stabbed because of this. This is, this is, of serious conversation. So we've had to have that conversation in our family. Um, and it's felt, it's felt terrible to have to say that. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. And in the same way that like now there's all this news about like everybody should be wearing masks. Like when you go outside, you should be wearing a mask. I have been really anxious about wearing a mask in public, even though I'm not, I don't, you know, like I'm asymptomatic. If, if I have it, I'm asymptomatic. If I don't have it, I'm not presenting. But I also don't want to be the Asian American person walking around with a mask on. Like I have only seen in Kansas, where I live in Kansas City, one person in public who's Asian wearing a mask. Now, I don't know for sure if it's because all these Asians are not. But like I have to I have to guess that at least some of us who are not wearing masks are not wearing masks because it's just as bad as people thinking you have it anyway. It's a target. It, like you yeah. feel like people might target you. I yes. realize we should probably define xenophobia for folks who don't yes. know the meaning of the term. Yes. So really, when we think about this historically, oftentimes it's like it's anti-Chinese discrimination in particular, anti-Chinese bias, anti-Chinese prejudice. It has like a long historical, um, it's rooted in colonialism. It's rooted in all kinds of labor history in the United States. Um, But the funny thing is that like you can talk about Sinophobia um, and being anti-Chinese but in the United States, we don't do race by ethnicity. So I'm not Chinese. Ethnically, I'm not Chinese. Ethnically, I am my fa- my family's a small ethnic group from Southeast Asia, a tribal community. Um, but it doesn't matter because people don't know the difference. <laughs> people don't know the difference. It's kind you know, of like, Asian is Asian. Right. It's kind of like it reminds me of uh, like post 9-11 with a lot of the anti-Arab mm-hmm. sentiment and people who are Sikh being targeted or, totally. or even just like the understanding like 9-11 heightened some people's awareness, shone a light on the anti-Arab sentiment in our country, mm-hmm. but it was there before 9-11. Just like you're talking Absolutely. about this long history of anti-Chinese yes. laws and attitudes. And then because we lump all Asian Americans and you yes. know, regardless of your ethnicity and your nation of origin, that then you get targeted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, There are plenty of people I know who um, would say I'm unnecessarily politicizing something by saying that, like, the president's anti-Chinese rhetoric um, is what's like, you know, because people would say, well, I can can think of my friends who would say, people that I know who would say, well, the president can say all kinds of things, but, you know, he's not responsible for what people say or do. And I think, yeah, I mean, we're all individually responsible for our own actions. Um, And... Like he has very, very clearly created an environment in which um, Chineseness is synonymous with this virus. Absolutely, there's no reason why he would uh, Chinese virus, China virus. Like even if he succumbed to whatever public pressure there was, and he's no longer tweeting it, it doesn't matter because the cultural seed has already been sown, and the permission was granted when he said it one time. He only had to say it once for anybody who was ready to be xenophobic themselves or anti-Asian or nationalist themselves to feel like now they have permission to do it. And so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter anymore that he's not saying it that way Um, because people have already engaged fully and fed into the culture, the anti-Asian culture because of it. They already have permission. He's given them the green light Mm -hmm. so he can say it and then back off and say, exactly. And I, I do feel like there's a, there's responsibility there as leaders. Mm-hmm. And that's been something, you know, parenting amidst the pandemic has been tough because yes. you're together 24 seven and you want to, you know, that everyone's under a lot of stress and you want to, 
you know, you want to try to make this time as 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 connecting and and fruitful as you can while everyone's healthy. Um, and yet they still have to be um, guided. So we mm-hmm. had an incident where one of our kids was not being accountable for what they said that they would do and then wasn't being fully truthful about what they said, you know, about what they did. And <laughs> I found myself saying, you know, we're trying to raise you to be an adult that can be accountable for their actions and their words and that your words match your actions and right, all of those things mm-hmm. that as parents we try to teach our kids. And it hit me. Like, this is a core problem with our leadership right now. And yes. I'm saying this, yet we, ha- we, have, we have leadership that their words aren't matching their deeds. And yep. that that actually makes my job harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. A million times harder. Yeah. Totally. And, and I, it hit me specifically around the, the, like, the rhetoric with the virus and Chinese virus was one of the comments, but just other things around like ignoring actual data and science. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we've had, yeah, it's four years of ignoring data and science with this administration. But it's so, it's yeah. in our faces every day. The, yeah. the, con- and the, I would say that contradiction was in our faces all every day before now. Sure. Right. Of Again. Course. Yeah. So like this is shining a light. COVID-19 is shining a light on, on like, are we, are we going to be okay with this? Mm-hmm. Are we mm-hmm. going to, are we going to sit for this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting too, like we think about what our children don't have in terms of examples of accountability at the highest levels of leadership in this country, like my nine-year-old. So actually, I should say, I try very, I want, I try very hard not to watch the news with my kids around. I watch a lot of news for my job and I'm constantly surveying what's happening in the like 24 hour news cycle. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, my kids will end up in a room when I'm watching the news and then they'll sort of watch it. Um, <laughs> now they occasionally will turn the news on themselves, even though I'm like, I don't want you watching the news. And those two days ago, my old daughter was like, we need to know what's happening. So sometimes we watch the news when you're not here. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, when I was 11, I was like, definitely not watching the news. But, um, but even my nine-year-old, this conversation around accountability and what we're saying and what's real versus what our leaders are saying. Um, even my nine-year-old was like, mom, I don't understand why Donald Trump keeps saying this is the China virus because aren't there people sick all over the world? Like, and then she saw a news, she brought it up again the other day when the news broke that like the U.S. had the highest number, like one of the highest numbers of infections. And she's like, why are people thinking this is like a Chinese thing when there are lots of people who aren't Chinese who have this? And so then we had the conversation about like the, the disconnect between rhetoric and the a super racist colonial and nationalist framing of the issue versus like what's actually real. Yeah. And we don't know for sure that it originated in China. Like all these people are saying, oh, it's from like these wet markets and because Chinese people eat bats. And so then like, and we had another conversation about, um, you know, like why people think that it's because Chinese people eat bats. And I said, well, like a lot of people believe that because a lot of people believe the Chinese people eat things that are quote unquote gross. But there's also history like in the United States yes. where like if you look at all of the um, the community bills and pictures and stuff that were hung up when the Chinese were here building the Chinese railroads or the, the transcontinental railroads in the 1800s of like Chinese people eat rats and they're going to come in and they're going to eat like the, it's a, it's an old, old, old trope narrative. around what Chinese people eat, how it's gross, how it's disgusting, how we will judge what people are doing in order to justify that a whole group of people are disgusting and gross. And so of course they're the ones who are responsible for this. Um, like it was, it was, she was actually really both interested and horrified at like the, the old anti-Chinese stuff here in the United States that she, we hadn't really talked about yet um, and how that was connected to what people are saying now. That's so a, it's an important conversation to have. It is. It is. And it's reminding me. So in Raising Equity, we have a framework called Raising Equity Nerds, right? Like we are so interested in, in taking our kids to Kumon or having them be in the yes. best sports, but like we often aren't uh, intentional about having them understand systems of oppression and and how they have been 
uh, perpetuated. And so in Raising Equity Nerds, we talk about we need to name it, right? Like what's a system of Mm -hmm. oppression operating? So talking about xenophobia and like, and then E, educate ourselves. Okay, what's the history, right? We're seeing the system Mm -hmm. operating now, but what's the history? How'd we get here? And then R, reframe it from it being like an individual thing of like right now, this person who's thinking I'm coughing and has coronavirus to like understanding, oh, this is a long history. There's a long, it's it's a systemic problem, not just an individual problem. Totally. And then D, dreaming up solutions. Like what would it look like for us to have a more equitable understanding of disease of, you know, in public health and and then S, start to act. Like what's the next smallest step that you can take in your sphere of influence to interrupt the system of oppression? So, I love that acronym. Thank you. Thank you. So, That's but awesome. what you're doing is you're you're raising equity nerds, right? Like you're you're thinking yeah. about how to put what's happening right now in larger context. And I actually think that that helps kids have agency and to understand, like mm-hmm. especially if they are a target. And in a sense, your daughter was with that microaggression, although it yeah. wasn't very micro, with the discrimination that happened. Um, that mm-hmm. it help it can help her understand that. That this is not this is that person stuff, not necessarily about me, even though it was about me in that moment. So I think it yeah. has a lot of utility yeah. in in lots of different ways. So interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> and it and it will explain to them, yes, why their dad and I teach them to behave in particular ways because you're also responding to a, a systemic like a systemic norm. We may not like it. We may not agree with it. We certainly don't agree with it. We can think it's wrong and harmful. And every time we go someplace, we still have to know how to respond to it in a way that will keep you safe, that will get you out of there as quickly as possible. Like until you are old enough to fight for yourself, my job is to get you out of that situation as quickly as possible and to keep you out of harm's way. Like, and so that's part of what we're teaching them. And, you know, like as, and as much as we can say, like, that creates all kinds of internalized behavior and we internalize the oppression through that behavior. Like at nine and 11, I'm going to get you out of that situation as quickly as possible. We can talk about it later, but I'm going to teach you the behaviors that get you out of that situation. I actually, so I've been shifting to thinking about internalized oppression as more appropriated oppression. And it's not just me. Tappan Mm -hmm. is an education Mm -hmm. theorist and there's some other folks. Uh, Wrangel, I think is one of the other theorists. And they talk about how rather than think about it as stuff that's in us, that we've picked it up, we've appropriated it from the system of oppression. It's taught us, right? And I I like that framing because I I think we do, we teach our kids how to be safe and how to, and so if I can help you understand the larger system, the broader system, you might appropriate some behaviors to stay safe in that system, but you also understand the larger system. And and yeah. we also can think about how when those appropriated behaviors are no longer useful or no longer serving you or no longer needed, as we do the other work of dismantling those systems, right? How you might put them down, how you mm-hmm. might interrupt this, this thinking of like that equals me. Well, no, that's how I have had to learn to act in this system. Totally. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's really helpful because I think it actually also, it what you just discussed or just explained makes so much sense to me because part of what any good survival tool teaches you is that it's usable in certain places and not usable in other places. And in fact, using that survival tool in some other place of your life could actually harm you even more. So the the big trajectory, like the, the big life lesson is like, this is a tool that's appropriate in the situation. And then you set that tool down because you don't use it everywhere else. And it doesn't it, it won't serve you well in another place. Like I had, I was doing some mindfulness work with somebody who said, you know, at some point you may learn that you need a life raft. And so you use the life raft because it keeps you alive. But it, there, you will come, there will come a time when you don't need the life raft. But if you think you still need it, you're just hauling a life raft around with you everywhere. And it makes you tired and it makes you weak or it doesn't, it's not serving you. You can't get into certain spaces because your life raft is too big. In that situation, you don't need a life raft. Um, and it's been a useful way for me to think about it. And it's such an interesting marriage to hear what you just said around what we pick up, not what makes us who we are, but what we pick up and use in order to navigate an oppressive system. And then also then how do we learn to differentiate when I need to use that tool and when I don't need to use that tool? 
that's fairly, yeah, that's like some high level stuff. (laughs) It's been what I've been thinking about and trying to like think about in theory and then think about in practice. What Mm -hmm. does that look like? And Mm -hmm. I do, I think that psychology has lots of tools around learning and shaping behavior. So I think there's a lot of strategies that, that we can use to help people interrupt that learning. Um, But it is, it's, it's big, it's big work to even think about what have I appropriated from oppression, Mm -hmm. whether it's ideas of superiority, inferiority, like that's big work. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. That's life work. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I think about is, is being um, able to be, to adapt, like the importance of being able to adapt Mm -hmm. and, and reflect so when do I need this one, don't I? And how can I can I adapt and not be rigid and say, but I needed this over here. Yeah. And in in a related but kind of like a little bit of a a turn, um, I wanted to t- hear your thoughts about this way in which we've had to adapt and shift online because you've been living so much of your life <laughs> yeah. online, like not yeah. in terms of even like how you work, but like the work you do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been doing like digital strategy work for before it was a thing. Yeah. And so yeah, how has that it's, been? It's been really, um, it's been fascinating to see. So there were a couple of things I've just been mulling over around um, digital literacy and like a couple of things, digital, digital literacy, digital hygiene, mm. um, and also just like digital access. So What's been fascinating to me is that like, there are so many people who've been forced into going digital now who have no idea how to navigate the space. So they don't have infrastructure. They don't have systems. They don't have, they don't even know how to talk to each other over video. They don't even know, they don't know how to use Zoom. They don't know how to use iChat. They don't know how to use any of even the basic tools um, that would help people be efficient, effective, productive. um, And, you know, like, there's, there's just, there's, it's, it's also fascinating for me to think about how people, how many people don't know how to use those tools um, and haven't had to learn despite how digital we really are. Like in our everyday lives, we are highly digital, but people are not necessarily digitally literate. Um, so that's been fascinating to see, especially as there've been like grassroots groups and nonprofit groups and small organizations that now have no idea what to do and just need basic support around like, how do you have an effective teleconference? Right. <laughs> like, how do you actually use Google Docs? Like, how do you do this? How do you do it? So it's not just like a giant pile of messy documents in somebody's drive. Um, like those kinds of things have been really interesting. The second thing- oh, Before ahead. we leave that though, that's something that I have seen as a, as a professor. Like I have colleagues who have just taken their class and done them on Zoom. And it's like, who wants to yeah. sit for three hours- <laughs> On a Zoom class. No one. (laughs) No, no one does. No one does. Adapt. 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 Please. Like, (laughs) how do we make this? And so it's been interesting to me. And, you know, we didn't have much time, so I'm not claiming to do this well. But, like, I feel pretty adept at using things like Zoom and Google Docs and just other Mm -hmm. tools. And so I actually found um, a website, Perusal, that will take your textbook and so then like we can annotate the textbook together and have a conversation yeah. with each other in the textbook. And I'm sure there are other mm-hmm. frameworks that do that, platforms that do that too. But to me, I'm like, oh, this is a way to do some of our conversation and our discussion asynchronous so that we don't yes. have to, because it's a graduate seminar. So a lot of it is thinking and talking and asking questions and mm-hmm. pulling theories in. Um, I was like, yeah, we don't have to sit and do that for three hours. We can do some of that when we read Absolutely. these texts. Yes, which is also proof that that three-hour class or two-hour meeting never needed to be that long to begin with. <laughs> like, this is just proof that we could, in fact, if we were not digital anymore, like that we don't have to put that much time. We could be much more effective in less time. Yeah, but then um, also so that's on that, fascinating. It is fascinating, but also on the literacy piece. What are your thoughts around, I've heard some people talk about, you know, there's been this move to Zoom, but then there are like all these problems with Zoom and its privacy and. Yes, major security problems with Zoom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think like I was just reading, I don't know, but a CNET, I was reading an article um, about Zoom, like very quickly trying to close up the, the holes there around security, because for people who don't know, like there've been people who've been on conferences and 
calling into a video conference on Zoom and then it gets hacked and somebody starts drawing like explicit pictures or like sharing things or getting into the chats and disrupting, which actually is what something that happened last weekend. I was on um, a big Zoom call with a bunch of people across the country talking about xenophobia and and, um, anti-Asian racism right now. And somebody infiltrated the chat and was like saying really awful things in the chat. So that is a real thing, which actually is also then connected to like digital hygiene where people don't actually know how to be secure. So people are in this place where they're forced to use digital tools because of the pandemic right now. Um, And then they, at the same time, they don't know how to be, how to keep the net tight. They don't know how to run security. They don't know how to do two-factor authentication. They don't know how to do the things that keep you safe. Um, not just from other people coming and seeing what you're doing, but like taking your stuff, like invading your space, invading your your files, invading your personal and private information. Um, like this is, I think the next couple of months are going to be prime for people to be taken advantage of online. And, I and wonder- so that's been really like, sort of forefront of my mind is trying to help people think about hygiene and safety. Yeah, no, that is a concept I hadn't thought about, but makes total sense. And I wonder if there are opportunities like with the whole Zoom thing. I remember hearing something about it, but didn't really know. And so that's where our institution went. And and I've had an account and I thought, oh gosh, do I need I need to get serious about this? And then I thought, well, maybe I need to connect with folks who are who are putting pressure on Zoom to fix the problem because this could be an opportunity to, okay, a lot of us are using this. Now change this, fix this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's so much that I don't know. Like, I don't know what I don't know. And so this idea of digital hygiene is is an important one because you don't want people to be taken advantage of. And like, I think about, you know, my mom who's who's not this isn't native for her. Like she wasn't she did not grow up using all of these tools and strategies. And she wanted I sent her something using Facebook Messenger, which has its own set of problems. But that's how she we talk sometimes. Mm -hmm. And she asked me for it. And she's like, I checked my texts and I checked my emails. And I was like, yeah, mom, it was, just, it was it's a totally another different tool, like different thread. <laughs> like, she's going to ask you to fax her something. Can you just fax that to me? <laughs> oh, but it's, you know, so it is yes. it's like people who haven't been forced to be digital and live in these spaces are having to like yeah. be quick studies. And, and there are some like, totally. I have a project I'm working on where we're using a Slack, we're using Slack. And I've used mm-hmm. it at conferences and I've used it for a project, but I'm not adept at like really using it to work. And so I'm having to yeah. figure out, okay, how do I work using Slack? Not just be at a conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Slack is the one of the primary messaging tools that I use yeah. for working on projects and with my coworkers. But it takes a long time because it has its own quirks, but like every platform has its own way of being used culturally. Um, so it's really, I think that's like working on Slack is very different than like Google chat or when I'm on Gmail chatting with people, there's just, but that's only because like as somebody who's been doing digital work for a long time, like I've learned that there's the capacity of each, each platform and what it's really good for and what it's not really good for. Um, but that takes a long time. I think another thing that's worth mentioning too around digital hygiene is that like as children are going into online distance learning. I have like done extra lockdowns on my kids' stuff. I mean, my kids are very locked down in lots, in lots of ways just for their own security and safety. But I, I am very concerned about the sheer number of children who are now online every day and who may not have people who know how to keep them safe. What do I need to be um, doing, Paku? So, Tell me. Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> I mean, I think there's like, I think there's really important things to do around like you monitor your kids hygiene every day. So like now that my kids are on all the time, I'm looking at the end of the day at everything they're searching. I have access to their Google classrooms. So I know how to get into their Google classrooms and look at what they're doing and what people are saying. My children um, have limited apps that they're allowed to use. Like they're not allowed to be on TikTok. They're not allowed to be on certain things. So because I've made lots of choices around that or musically, which, you know, like, there's just a, there's so much stuff that could be risky already. Um, but I'm constantly looking at their stuff and, um, and I set limitations on how much they can be on certain things. So like even their, even their Nintendo switch, 
which where they could meet up with friends and play, which is fine, but they have limitations on that. And I track everything. And it, it may, I think to a lot of people that may seem like overkill, but I think especially now it, it really matters to know exactly what your kids are doing and where they're going. And, um, you know, like hopefully they don't know how to erase their browser histories, right? Like my kid doesn't, they don't know how to erase their browser histories and they don't know how to go into private, <laughs> into a private or like, you know, secret browser. So I can totally see what they're doing. I can see what they're searching on YouTube and where that black hole is leading them. Um, but so, so I say that to tell you all that that's what I do with my kids. And that means though that you as an adult in that child's life have to have your, enough literacy to know to do that. And so it's not so much, it's, par- it's partly that children are engaging in online at much higher rates than ever before now that we're going to be doing this off um, distance learning. But this is what also like the, the gaping hole is that most adults caring for young people who are now doing that don't know enough to track that, to, to also look at their children's safety because they're not, they don't know enough to track their own safety. So it's been as a parent, I keep, I'm trying to figure out like, what is the solution? Like, I don't know what, like the solution is like lots of teach-ins, lots of webinars, lots of accessing parents. And then like, how do we make it accessible? Like for parents who, this is what we started at the very beginning, who have the luxury and the privilege and the spaciousness to do that when there are parents who are like, I don't care what my kid is doing online because we don't have food. So I don't really give a crap what they're doing online um, to try to figure out how to reach lots of sectors and groups of people to keep everybody safe um, is something that I think is going to be an emerging conversation among families. Um, And, you know, like, and again, like, like anything, it just illuminates points of access and points of inaccess. Absolutely. And that's what I, I I mean, I would take that webinar in a second. Like if you, if you all, if parents together, or if you do that, (laughs) because I think about like, yeah, no, (laughs) some of it I do review, not every day. I really don't. I have to be totally honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now that they're on so much during the day to do, like you said, their classwork, all that I need to, I need to up that, that frequency. Um, But even just with their simple ways that I've, I've learned as they have their different profiles on the computer, right? Like to limit um, when you tell them their age, at least on Apple products, right? You can limit explicit content. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. with my 10 year old in particular, we've had a conversation. I think it was something that he couldn't access or get to because I had that limitation on there. I was like, yeah, uh, it's for your own good. And we were able to talk about it. uh, And I had forgotten that I put it on there. But I'm not doing enough on a daily basis to just mm-hmm. and it, it's it makes total sense when you think about it like hygiene, like they need to brush their teeth, you know, I need to yes. make sure they're taking showers <laughs> and eating vegetables. I should yeah. be I should be reviewing their online content more. Yeah. And I and I didn't do it as frequently. I mean, you know, I hear you saying like, well, I don't do it as much. Like I didn't do it as frequently. I did it maybe twice a week, once a week. Mm-hmm before they went into distance learning. Now I'm looking at it. Like it's kind of like a routine. Like at the end of the day, I'm looking at all their stuff, the cell phone that they use and the tablets that they use mm. and just logging in and looking at everything. Yeah. And even just the fact because that they're not, they're not going to know, like if something looks off or strange, they're not going to know. But because I've worked in this sector for a long time, I will know what flags are off. Yeah. That's helpful. And, and even just you doing that, that might keep them from going down some black holes, like knowing that someone's going to be reviewing it might be mm-hmm. enough to stop them from going down some roads. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Although I will say my oldest child thought she was real sneaky for a while where she would like, there was an app she wasn't allowed to use. And when she was given permission to use the tablet, then she put the app on, but then she would delete it. So that when I looked, so she would basically just install the app every time and then delete it until I caught her. And then, and then, then the consequences were much, uh, much steeper, but. Right. Yes. Cause she knew it she was wasn't sneaky. supposed to be doing that. Yes. Gotta love it. And in terms of the access yes. piece, that's something that I see a lot of schools trying to address. Like we had this morning, yet yeah, another email from the kids schools. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Cause for us, school, school hasn't officially started for one, for the older one. 
they'll it'll officially mm-hmm. start on Monday. And so it's this whole thing of like, are you on, they're using Teams. Are you on Microsoft Teams? Do you have a device? Contact us if you don't, right? Um, whereas yeah. the younger one, they have they have started school-ish. We had to pick up the packet, that sort of thing. But they they've been trying to to address the issue of access. But even when you give someone a device, that doesn't mean that they have well, actually, one of the internet providers here in the area has has offered to provide um, free Wi-Fi for the next 90 days for families who don't have it. Mm-hmm. So trying to, again, highlight the divide that was there before COVID-19. But, yeah. you know, this is an opportunity that if we see it and we're doing this pivot, we might be able to address some needs that were pressing, but not at the top of the list for some folks. Absolutely. Well, and you know, this is, yes, like the other interesting thing that in a conversation I had with my 11 year old who's in sixth grade, um, last week in the, their first week of distance learning, you know, they, all the kids come into Google classroom and they can post stuff and you can see what work people are doing, what your peers are doing. And she made a comment about like, mom, like there's only some of us who are doing the work. Like there are some people who aren't even doing anything. And I said, okay. And she's like, I don't understand why they're not doing anything because we're supposed to be in school right now. And we had a conversation about access. And I said, listen, first of all, you're here to just do your job. So you just do your job. You don't need to do anybody else's job. But second, what you don't think about or what you're not thinking about is that like there may be kids who want to, to do their schoolwork, but they can't for some reason. They haven't been able to get a device yet. They don't have internet at their house. Maybe they got a device and they live with an adult who decided that they were going to use the device. Like maybe there, there are all these other things that you don't know about that you don't have to think about because while your iPad screen is cracked because you dropped it, you have one. And there was never a question that you weren't going to get what you needed if you needed to go to school. And we weren't going to have to borrow from school. We would have bought you one. So I said, you need to just stop and think for a minute about what you're saying and what you just don't know about what's happening for people during a very hard time because not everybody has the level of access that you have. It's great that you can do that. It's great that some of your friends are there and everybody and some people are working. But if you're sitting here passing judgment on the kids who aren't doing something, you should check yourself because you have no idea what's happening for them. And so you just stick to doing you and that's all you're responsible for. Right. Um, But it was a very important conversation to have with her. Like, this is what you're seeing. And I said, and these, these are the kids that you went to school with before all this stuff happened. Like they go home and they don't have computers and they don't have tablets and they don't have cell phones. They don't get those things. That's not a given for anybody. And I, we often say again, the majority of the world does not live like you do. So you should be thinking about the fact that most of the world has none of the things that you have. And some of the people who don't have the things you, that you have are the people you go to school with. Yep. Yep. And that, and, and often for us, the conversation then extends to, and those things don't make you who they are, don't make you better than, right? Like that whole thing of like measuring, measuring a person's worth by their, by their stuff, which kids get so caught up in. Um, Yeah. Yeah. These are such layered conversations. And the fascinating, a related fascinating thing around access that I've, I don't know how schools are dealing it, if they're dealing with it, probably not because teachers are so taxed right now and administrations are so taxed right now, is the like in digital learning spaces where there are children who, because of lack of access, cannot show up to class. How, one, how they'll deal with the long-term impacts of that, but also how they'll deal with the shame of that. Because in a, in a situation like my child's, where you can see what your peers are doing, you can also very clearly see like where the kids who are doing a bunch of stuff can see the kids who aren't doing anything. And to me, that just feels like an incubator for all kinds of shame an incubator for all kinds of guilt, an incubator for all kinds of like, we're better than, I mean, my kid started that herself last week in her own. So the subtext was like, well, we're doing the stuff, but they're not. And I'm like, don't you start with this? We and like us and them stuff. Right. Because embedded in that is something much deeper. And I, that's like, I don't know how to address it as a parent, especially when you think about like all the intersecting things around like, lack of access and class and race and geography and where kids are located in the city and what their families may or may not have access to that. Like it's, it just feels to me like a bubbling cauldron that could potentially fill with lots of shame and nobody knows how to deal with it. Yeah. 
People yeah. are just like white knuckling to get like, just pick up your packets. Like all we need you to do is like <laughs> do your reading homework, but there's like all this other stuff happening. And I don't know how to talk about it with teachers. I don't know how to talk about it with other kids. And I certainly, I don't have relationships with some of these families where they may be experiencing that. And I don't want to assume that people are experiencing that, but I'm sure somewhere some kid is experiencing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Our school has, is attempting, is attempting to survey and they've done enough. So it has an anti-racist, anti-bias frame, the, the way the school mm-hmm. attempts to operate. And so, the, and they, you know, they, they admit that we have this framework, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. And so they try to be in relationship with families enough to know what people need. But what you just said made me think about how, even if, even if we're able to go back to school in August, what, that we're still going to be dealing with the remnants of now. And like you said, whether it's, whether it's the shame or um, just even it's that somebody wasn't able to learn at grade level or right. Like there's just so many factors that, yeah, like you said, we're white knuckling to get through this school year, but where are we going to be in the fall? One mm-hmm. of my, one of my kids schools talked about how um, we're going to, we're going to, to tackle new learning, like that we will be learning new things because there was this whole conversation around like, so do we just, you know, kind of stop the new learning and just kind of ride it out? And the the principal was saying, no, we need you, if you're in algebra, whatever, we need you to be ready for the next class in the fall. Because if we don't yeah. get you ready, this, you know, this is going to have all sorts of ramifications. And so yeah. that, to me, it's the school is going to be holding more of the the burden around these disparities than it ever has. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, so I think continuing to name it and shining a light on it is going to be essential and holding the schools accountable, but also being in partnership. Like, I don't like that language of like, Oh, it's the school's responsibility, but like, how okay. do we make sure that it, that doesn't get lost and, and that we don't blame the kids for not being where they need to be because of a lack of access. Totally. Totally. That's a lot. It is. It is. Yeah. My kids were like, they asked like mom after we, so after we had this conversation about like access and what some kids will be able to do and what some kids won't be able to do during this period, they said, do you think that they're going to hold kids back? And my nine-year-old connected the dots enough to be like, if they hold kids back, will it be all the poor kids? And I was like, that's the question to ask. That's the question to ask, like the kids who are experiencing a lack of access. Is, is this what we're really going to do? We don't, I, I, we don't know. I don't know. And I hope that that enough of us mm-hmm. are asking that question that they that they wouldn't dare. <laughs> that right, Like in the past, things like that have happened. Yeah. I mean, and, and let's be mm-hmm. real. That's the, the poor kids, the black and brown kids. That's who gets t- funneled into special into special education. Right. We yep. know this. Yep. It's disproportionate. And so we've been doing that. But to do it now, would you, you would hope would be egregious. But that's why we have to have these conversations yeah. and be willing <laughs> yeah. to ask the question. Yeah. I know there's so much cure in the last four years that I thought was egregious. Apparently didn't, didn't quite <laughs> trigger people. You're so right. You're so right. Yes. Oh. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a cynic. I don't mean to sound to no. be a cynic. But I'm also just like, no, I'm just, I'm just gearing myself up for like the worst case social scenario and then anything else will be a pleasant surprise. <laughs> right. Well, Let's I feel like what we're talking out. about is the long game is making sure that people have an understanding of these different concepts and, and that what's happening in terms of the current events that everyone's concerned about and what we are talking about, how you have to understand that from a, from an anti-racism, anti-oppression lens and that these yeah. issues around oppression aren't siloed like they impact us every day um Mm -hmm. and if they don't impact us every day they impact someone every day and for us to understand how how COVID-19 is is highlighting the disparities that were already there and so maybe it maybe it pushes people in this moment maybe it tugs at their heartstrings enough that they pay more attention and then the issues are on their radar beyond I I I try to be hopeful in that way Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, the question that you asked towards the beginning of our conversation about like, where is the opening or opportunity to engage in community? 
Like that's the, these kinds of questions are the fundamental questions you should be asking because they're the source of questions that care for community, think about community as a whole, um, create opportunities for everybody in the community, wherever their starting place is to, to fully engage and be successful. So when we think about, you know, education or the ways in which we see lack of access just being exacerbated by what we're, what we're experiencing now with the pandemic, to me, the opportunity for community is to be like, I don't have to be somebody who is experiencing or having the harshest experience right now to care about the people in my community, to leverage my power and access in such a way that it produces something better for other folks. And also, and, you know, and certainly in a way that isn't like messianic or like, I'm going to come be the good one, but like to really ask myself, like, where does my family have access and privilege and what can we do that would make something fundamentally different today for another person? Not because we want to feel good, but because it's the right thing to do, because that's what we should be doing in community. That's the best of social welfare and caring for one another. And if there's anything good that could come out of this, I think it would be that. Yes. Yes. How do we leverage our privilege? Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. Paku, if folks want to follow you or hear more about you and your thoughts, um, how, how would you want them to do that? So people can um, find me on Facebook. I am on Twitter, but not active. We could probably do a whole other podcast about why I'm not active on Twitter anymore. Um, but I am occasionally there. You might see me retweet a few things occasionally, but you can find me there. Um, you can search me on Facebook. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. If you want to see some of my uh, posts, um, if you're interested in the work that Parents Together does, you can find us at parents-together.org. Um, and you can also find us on Facebook. Like Facebook is where we do the bulk of our organizing um, with parents. So you can sign up with us and we can send you Facebook messages and um, connect with us there too. Awesome. And then um, lastly, if anybody, you know, if people are looking for any training or consulting or race equity work or organizational development work um, or more conversations about Asian Americans in the racial construct, I'm also always happy to, to talk to people about that. And folks can reach me very easily through Facebook Messenger. That's a very quick way of finding me. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your, what I know is a busy schedule. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you inviting me to be here. And thank you all for joining me on Raising Equity. I know I learned a lot around my work as a parent, my digital hygiene, and so much more. So I want us to all think about what are the openings that COVID-19 has has presented to us? How do we leverage our privilege and be in community with others around us? So thanks for joining us on Raising Equity. Raising Equity.